the news this week, you might have heard that the Vice President's wife did something audacious. She didn't throw a box of puppies into the river. She didn't uh, slight Tom Hanks as an actor. She took a job as a part-time teacher, an art teacher at an elementary school, a school that she had taught at while her husband was then senator. But this school is a Christian school, and they have a statement of faith that they expect the teachers to hold to, to maintain a lifestyle based on biblical standards of moral conduct, that the teachers will not engage in, and I quote, heteros- or they, uh, they will not engage in heterosexual activity outside of marriage, e.g. premarital sex, cohabitation, extramarital sex, homosexual or lesbian sexual activity, polygamy, transgender identity, or any other violation of the unique roles of male and female. And she was skewered in the paper. Many churches would say that that is bigoted to say such a thing. And so the church gets rocked on its heels and goes, what answer do we have? What do I say? What do we say when Gillette Razor comes out with an ad campaign trying to do away with toxic masculinity? What is masculinity in the first place? And what has made it toxic that we have to do away with it? Two days ago was the annual March for Life in Washington, D.C., where pro-life activists went to highlight the atrocity that I highlighted at the start of our worship. But yesterday... Almost countering that was the Women's March, which has become a thing. Think peculiar pink hats. And there are some things in the Women's March where we would go, yes, they are advocating racial harmony. Yes, they are, they are highlighting violence against women. And we would go, bad, that, you know, that's, that's a bad thing. Yeah, we're, we, we agree with you. But the Women's March also seeks to advance reproductive rights. That's their euphemism for abortion. And the LGBTQIA plus agenda. I didn't know there were that many letters. Every time I look, there's an additional letter added on. Around us, in our country and overseas, we have seen churches capitulate to social pressure. Are you going to conform to what we say or are you going to hold on to your own little peculiar little island? Denominations that have held the standards for 2,000 years are suddenly turning away from those standards. Should we do the same thing? Must the church conform to the culture? Has the church gotten it wrong? The culture is certainly not going to conform to the church. The Apostle John, near the end of his life, warned believers. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is going to try to press you into its mold. This is why Paul gave the Roman saints similar guidance. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable 
and perfect, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. So saints, that's our mandate. What does God say? I don't care what the world says. Now we might hear what they're saying and go, whoa. And then we might go, what does God have to say about that? This is what should transform our hearts and minds. You can call up any news site today and what you will see is precious little biblical examination. You will see PhDs quoted and people with emotive experiences telling what they feel and what their heart thinks. So today, what I would like us to do is to look at what God's word says about the sanctity of human life and how that bears on so many issues. There is virtually not an issue out there that you cannot trace back to the precious nature of humanity as created by God. So the first thing we'll do today is look at what God says about man within the creation. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unload. I'm going to make your head swim by bringing up issue after issue and how uh, the sanctity of human life impacts that issue. And finally, we'll look at what we can do about that. But first, let's bow our hearts and minds before the living God. Fathers, I come before you today, what I say is meaningless. And I would ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would muzzle me. That your word would be proclaimed truthfully here. That the saints would be discerning by the power of the Holy Spirit in them. That your word would flourish in our hearts and minds. And that your glory would be seen. Father, that we would be a beacon to salvation and eternal life in Christ Jesus. Be exalted in the preaching of your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 8. Josh read it for us. David is awed and overwhelmed at man's place in God's creation. Oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. He gives God his just due. But really the thing that we see that is that is perhaps staggered his mind is that God would call upon us. That God would even notice man there. God's glory certainly is above the heavens. And, and Paul makes plain in Romans chapter 1 that men are without excuse because God's glory is seen just outside the window. Even the babes cry out and <coughs> exhibit God's glory in verse 2. But David feels insignificant when I look at the heavens, your heavens, verse 3 the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? You are one person on a planet of, of seven billion. Out of eight planets orbiting a single star in a galaxy with 300 billion stars, in a universe with 200 billion galaxies, give or take a few. It led Carl Sagan to put it this way. Where are we? Who are we? We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of a universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. I mean, if you haven't stood at the lip of the Grand Canyon and gone, oh, I'm so small. if you've not seen an elephant up close and thought, oh, I'm so small. If you haven't seen the Milky Way spread out from 
horizon to horizon and think, I'm so small. This is a natural cry. But it is also a natural cry to go, I'm somehow different. I'm not a mouse. I'm not a bug. I mean, that same Carl Sagan who kind of poo-pooed our planet noted that every one of us in the cosmic perspective is precious. Where does an atheist come up with this? If a man disagrees with you, let him live. In a hundred billion galaxies, you'll not find another. Carl Sagan, though he would not bow the knee to the living God in his lifetime, recognized the unique stature of man, that each one is unique and precious. David recognizes this. He he recognizes as David has a relationship with the living God, he goes, that you are mindful of me. He knows that God is and it blows him away. You have an affection for man. But not only that, you have given him dominion. You have put us in charge of the planet. This is, this is David's response in Psalm 8. You can see the dominion sp- uh, spread out in verses 6, 7, and 8. Where do we come up with this, that man is unique and man is precious? Whenever we are looking at a topic, one of the most important things that we do is look at the first telling of it within scripture. So I'm going to ask you now to flip back to Genesis chapter 1. If I'm trying to understand what marriage is, I'm going to look at what God declares in his word in the beginning. If I'm trying to understand the church, I'm going to look at how the church was set up both in the gospel by Christ's words and in acts by the apostles. We could go into the constitution and original intent, but I'll not make that rabbit trail. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, we see that God makes man. And one of the first and most impressive things about man is that man is created in God's image. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what David declared. From the very beginning, we see, interestingly enough, the first thing that we see is the triune nature of God highlighted at in the conversation of the Godhead when he says, let us make man in our image. But he goes on to declare that man is going to be unique amongst all of the creation in that man is created in God's likeness. Now we read Jesus makes plain in John chapter 4 that God is spirit and those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so you go, well, I'm flesh and bone here. So it is not our bodily nature that is as God is. God sees and so we see through physical eyes. God hears and so we hear through physical ears. So it is our immaterial, our communicable attrib- the communicable attributes of God, things that he can share with us. Relational. We are relational beings. We are creative beings. We are rational thinking beings. We are emotional beings. God is all of these things. And God creates man uniquely after his likeness. But as I've already pointed out, God also created us physical. 
He created us physical beings in a physical realm. The planet is for our habitation. The lights in the sky are to delineate signs and seasons and to reveal His glory to us. But not only is man created after God's likeness, not only is man created physical, but man is created not just male. God creates them male and female. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. In chapter 2, when God puts Adam in the garden to tend it, he looks around, brings all the animals to him to be named, and Adam finds no helper suitable for him. So he's going, there's, there's an angst. He's got an angst in his gut going, ah, you know, so, this is great. This is really great, but mm, something's missing until God puts Adam to sleep and creates Isha, woman, and brings Eve to Adam. The same but different. This at last, Adam says, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Alike, same kind but different, male and female. God has purpose in created the, creating them male and female because he then commands them to be fruitful and multiply. It is through the maleness and through the femaleness that we have all those little kids around us. And in this, not only is man created, but man is also commissioned. God gives man a purpose to have dominion over the earth, to tend the garden. We see this. It makes it plain. Genesis 2.15, God puts Adam in the garden took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. He was to bring order to the disorder of nature. So by God's declaration, the cosmos generally and earth specifically were created to manifest God's glory and provide a habitation for God's special creature, man. So where does this truth touch the world around us? I would ask, where doesn't it? Any issue that deals with man's interaction with any other part of creation must at some point bring us back to these truths right here. If we do not begin at this, at this starting point, man's place in the cosmos is going to be diminished. Because logically, apart from these truths, you can't argue these points. You can't argue that man is special if you do not begin with the fact that man is created unique and special by God. Then he just is. You just are like plankton in the sea. You are no more significant than a bug, as some would advocate. If we do not begin with this, you have no objective foundation upon which to build an argument that man is special or unique. It, it becomes a matter of opinion. And whose opinion will hold sway in a secular society? Chairman Mao famously said, political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. Who will hold sway? The guy with the bigger muscles? The guy with the most voices? And what will happen to the minority? If in a nation that is no longer restrained by the word of God within the heart of each man, what will hold him back from pursuing the desires of his flesh? 
And so ultimately, we will see God's created order and purpose dismantled and destroyed. Not ultimately. We talked about it in Sunday school. We see cultures that have forsaken God and God will bring judgment to them. He does. Ultimately, God's good will prevail. But the very intent and purpose of Satan has always been to lie and deceive and destroy. But what about America? You know, we, America, America first, America always. You know, I love my country. I love my country. I love my country. I love its history. I love the principles upon which it was founded. But we are not any different than any other nation in that if we forsake the living God, God's judgment will come. But even as I go into God's word here to look at these issues, I have to be careful. Because I need to differentiate and delineate that God speaks to individuals. God speaks to individual people and holds them accountable to what he has said. But God also speaks to nations and holds them accountable to what he has said. And those two are not always the same. Nations and individuals are spoken of often differently. Communities. These arguments and discussions are not good for Twitter. Not good on Facebook. You're not going to be able to get into a deep, substantial argument on these topics. To understand weighty moral and spiritual issues requires for us as believers discernment and prayer and study and discussion. And as we take the message into the world, our manner matters. Our manner matters. Yes, I will go forth with the extraordinary and clear truth of God's declared word. But I must also go forth with the lavish grace and love that God showed me when he redeemed me in my ignorance and my blindness. So we're going to look at three categories of issues here. They're on the back of your bulletin. The first category that we're going to look at is uh, people in my community. How does the unique image of God bear on these issues? first issue that comes to mind and wasn't even originally in my sermon until this morning is racial division. I mean, I, I, I hear of the race riots of the 60s. I was alive at that time, but I, you know, I was about this size here. So the race riots didn't mean anything to me then. Civil rights didn't mean anything to me. But now today I see huge racial divisions in my country. Oh, white privilege. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an issue of white privilege. It's an, it's an abuse of the police. You don't understand where I've been. You don't understand my life. And in, in a lot of times, you're right, I don't. But what voice can penetrate this issue? You know, where, where a white man will say, get over it, civil rights is taken care of, let's all get along, we're all human beings. And on the other side, you look and you see evidences of bigotry still there. And what do you do? What's your answer? And, and for the believer, if I just start arguing things, I'm just another voice in the din. But what does God's word say? I mean, we are, we are pretty homogenous as far as the uh, melanin that everybody's sporting in their skin here. But every human being, every human being, every human being is created in God's image. Everyone. And deserves the dignity therein. And deserves justice therein. We'll talk more on justice here in a little bit. 
But if I do not start with the dignity of man, how can I even discuss racial divisions? It's going to become a side issue. Another, I'm going to glom these two together. You're driving down the road, you see the guy with the sign. You know, we'll work for food. Hungry, trying to get to Amarillo. What do you do with the poor man? What do you do with the alien? The waves of people trying to get into our country. Oh, man. Uh, well, what's God's word say? You know, have you studied it through? Well, we know, we just talked about that man is unique and precious. And so he should be cared for. But what's the nation's responsibility with regard to the protection of the people? Does God's word say anything about that? And it does. You know, but am I willing to look? One side cries out compassion. The other side cries out protection. Which one is right? And I say yes. Because that's what God's word says. But how will I know unless I look? God's word will provide us a form in looking at and understanding these issues. And it's interesting that you'll find within scripture, especially within the Mosaic law, that oftentimes the poor and the sojourner are linked together. They will link them together. But even in the law, you will see in context a distinction made between how the individual is supposed to handle the poor and the sojourner and how the nation, the people together, are supposed to handle the poor and the sojourner. Leviticus 25 verse 35 says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner and he shall live with you. There is no Ramada Inn for the sojourner and so you brought people into your home there. So a poor man was supposed to be treated by the individuals as a sojourner. You were supposed to look after one another. But the state is also given a charge and a mandate. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, God says, I charged your judges at that time to hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. So when under justice, the alien will be treated just like the citizen. But even the law distinguishes between what kind of sojourner is this? Is this a sojourner who's just coming in to do work? Or is this a sojourner who wants to come in and become a part of the nation? In discussing the Sabbath, we see a hint at the, the sojourner who wants to do work. On the Sabbath, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. But a few chapters before that, in Exodus chapter 12, in discussing the Passover, God gives a special instruction to the person who is a sojourner but wants to celebrate Passover with them. If a stranger shall, tongue twister, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. Is the one coming in willing to submit to the laws of the land? So there's a difference. God's word speaks of a dif difference. Now, Saint, how's that going to play out for us today? When we have people move into our neighborhoods, be they Muslim, Buddhist, or secular paganist, 
or blue or green or red or yellow or whatever melanin they have. How are we going to treat them? Well, hopefully we treat them all as those who are created in the image of God. How will the nation deal with them? That's different. And that's, that is a discussion that needs to be had. How is a nation to care, how is a secular nation to care for its people within and still show compassion on the borders? And I don't have an answer for that. But if we don't apply the word of God to it, we are going to start from quicksand instead of a sure foundation. So there's a couple of issues about people in our community around us. The second category I'd like to look at briefly, again, just to make your head swim, is life and death. Genetic engineering and cloning. CRISPR technology. I hadn't heard of CRISPR technology until last year, and only vaguely, about gene editing, where they can go in and edit your DNA while you're still in the womb. They can change your translatable traits for future generations. Is that a good idea? You go, uh, I don't know. I don't know because I'm ignorant on that. I, I don't know because you know, I, ha- I haven't researched that. I mean, we talk about cloning. You see it in the movies where they essentially take your cell and make it an embryo, one of your own cells, where they can take it and turn it into a real person. Are we there yet? Well, we did it with sheep. Okay, have we done it with human beings? I don't know. The Chinese are a whole lot further along on doing things like this than we are. This CRISPR technology where you can edit your cells. You can edit the cells of your child to get the green-eyed child that you wanted. To get the red-haired, curly-haired child that you wanted. To get the taller child, shorter child, broader child, whatever. You can do this. But that trait will be passed on. You have now mechanically wickered their DNA. Does God speak to this? Well, I thought it was God who knit us in the womb and determined what we will be. What will happen when these traits are passed on? We don't know. Will things blow up? We don't know. So what should we do? Well, the world says, because we can, why not? Let's do it. No, wait, 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 wait. Is it acceptable for me to fundamentally change who the child was designed by God to be at conception and to design him in my own image an image that I think is good and right and proper. Okay, we go, oh, no, no. But, what if my child is born with a cleft lip? Can I close it up? He was born that way. God made him that way. My child's deaf. Can I give him hearing aids? Oh, God made him that way. Can Can I give cochlear implants? We go, yes, of course. Um, can I give my child an artificial limb? Certainly, please do. And we go, yes, Jesus healed people. But to alter the DNA structure, to change who he inherently is before he is, and what are the ramifications of this? What does God's word say? What do the saints say? Have we thought about this? Well, and then there's fertilization techniques. Hmm. This is is going to hit a little closer to home. What do I do if I, I can't have a child? I can't. How far will I go to have a child? 
Considering what God's word says about a particular issue might put us in a very uncomfortable predicament. It might. In vitro fertilization, when they do in vitro fertilization and fertilize an egg outside the womb, they typically don't just do one egg. They do a mess of them. What then happens to all of those other fertilized eggs? Notice the euphemism, fertilized eggs. What is a fertilized egg? It's a person. What do we do with that? La 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 la. Don't want to know. Don't want to know. Put my head in the sand. Am I willing to do this to have a child? Gamete donors. We'll put it that way just for the sake of the kids here. If you don't know what a gamete is, look it up. Gamete donors. Um, One of the parents is unable to provide. And so we go outside to be able to fertilize the egg of one. But with somebody else's DNA. Some would argue that this is no different than adopting a child who is not your own. Okay? Well, well. but in the case of adopting a child, it's a child who already exists as opposed to I am going to these efforts to ultimately unite myself with a person who is not my spouse, and it might be mechanically, not physically, to have a baby. Where, what, is, what is the ethical issues involved in this? Well, God created man and woman that the two would be one flesh and that they would be fruitful and multiply. Again, I, I don't give you an easy answer here. But if we are not thinking about what God's word says, we will be led astray. Well, what about fertilization prevention? Well, we don't want to get pregnant just yet. Why? Health reasons. Okay? Health reasons. That's, that seems wise. There seems to be wisdom in that. Well, provision You know, I can't yet provide for a family there. Um, Convenience. That that would be more the American one. Convenience. Hey, man, we've still got some partying to do in us before we start having kids. Fertilization prevention is a crisis in the world today. There is not a Western civilization, there's not a Western nation that is procreating enough to keep the population constant. You need to have 2.11 children per family. Okay, I don't know how you have 0.11. Per family. United States used to, 10 years ago, we were doing, we were right there at 2.11, we're down to 1.8 which means the population of the United States over time is going to start to decrease indigenously through immigration. It's probably going to keep going up. It is so bad in some Western countries that uh, national leaders are calling for holidays so husbands and wives can have a day off to go home and make babies. True. True. It is that way in Nordic countries even now. It's been that way in the Soviet Union. China is facing a national crisis because of their one-child policy where you have 40 million men of marrying age and no women to match them up with. And, And what of the methodology of this prevention if I'm going to prevent? Mechanical prevention, medical prevention. What if it's an abortifacient? What if in reality all I'm doing is aborting the pregnancy that has already taken place? Which takes us now from the, okay, life issues of life and death to the death issues. What is the issue of abortion today? 
It's a question of personal autonomy and the life of the child. What does God's word say? What principles flow out of God's word to us? Do we hear that God is life? Do we hear that God is the one who ordains the conception and the terminus of every individual? Do we glean from God's word that the death of the innocence is a stench in his nostrils? Do we glean from God's word that it is better to lay down your life for another rather than sacrifice them that you might live? What does God's word say to the person who is in agony over the decisions that they've made in the past? To the men who have forced their girlfriends into abortion. What does God's word say to them? Does he provide hope? Absolutely. What about the woman who agonizes? What about the doctors? What about the nurses? God's word. Apart from that, you have nothing. You have whiskey and drugs to numb your pain and false hope. That's the beginning of life, abortion. We could talk about that for weeks. What about the end of life, euthanasia? Choosing the time of our passing. Personal autonomy trumps all. I'm going to choose when I die. You don't have a say in that. Death with dignity, we call it today. There's a massive article this week in The Guardian in the Netherlands asking, have we gone too far? The Netherlands has been the nation who's longest had death with dignity. And they're wrestling with it now because what they're finding is that there are some people who are being put to death out of convenience and not because they wanted to. Others are having them put to death going, yeah, well, he would have wanted to die. Is euthanasia any different than suicide? This article would say yes. But really, I'm just taking my own life. Well, the person's going to say, you don't understand my suffering. I go, oh. But if I have God's word available to me, I can say, you're right. I don't understand your suffering, but you do not understand God's good purposes for your suffering. Because God's word is full. It is full God says that when death comes, God says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Well, if, if the death of innocence is a stench in the nostrils of God, what about capital punishment? If life is precious, if everyone is created in the image of God, what do we do with capital punishment? And again, apart from God's word, we go, ah. People will look at you and go, you're, you're pro-life, but you're pro-capital punishment? You're a hypocrite. I go, absolutely not. There's a difference between a child in the womb and somebody who's gunned down 15 people. God declares that very thing in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 through 6, where he, God himself, goes back to the beginning and says, because this person has shown a wanton disregard for my image in human life, it is your responsibility, I give you that responsibility to take the life of that person. Romans highlights to us that God has given that responsibility not to individuals, but to governments. In Romans chapter 13. So 
life and death issues, people around us. The last one I want to whiz through is human identity. Human identity. God created them male and female. LGBTQI plus A. I forgot the A. Um, What are you? Professors have to ask students, what do I call you? What, what is your pronoun du jour? Because we are confused. But what about the male who finds himself drawn toward things that are typically female? Or the female who would rather go hunting and gut a deer than go shopping and playing with dolls? Well, maybe I'm really a guy. In the past, we would call such a girl a tomboy or that boy a sissy. And in many ways, negative cultural pressures kept people male and female. It wasn't an issue, except in the darkness of their soul or the darkness of their night. But what do we do now when culture has popped the top and they say, man, whatever you feel, it's good. It's good. What if I were to stand up here today, and I'm not going to, but I were to say, I'm a woman. I'm really a woman. And this is serious because there are saints who are dealing with this. And I must appeal to the sure foundation of God's word that God in his wisdom created us male and female. I am what I am because of how he created me. Then why do I deal with this contradiction in my heart? Because of the fall. And we have an answer. And we have a hope in Christ. Because I may not simply struggle with my maleness or my femaleness, but I may struggle with what I am attracted to or who I am attracted to. The world is going to say, do it. And God says, no, don't. No, don't. It is far better for you to not. Trust me. Trust me. Find your satisfaction in me, not in what the world is calling you to. Paul makes this plain in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Notice we hit the sexually immoral and the adulterers before we get to men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards. None will inherit the kingdom of God. What is the purpose of human sexuality and physical relationship? What is the purpose? We must find it in God's word. Well, then what of marriage? You know, if we're going to talk about just the physical consummation, what is marriage? Today, it's like, eh, whoever. Any two people who love each other. And my question would be, why two? Why not three and four? And some would say, good point. If I, can't, if I don't have God's word to go back to, it's a mess. Well, if I'm married, why, not, why can't I dissolve that marriage? Because Jesus Christ himself said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus Christ, Matthew 19, verses 4 and 6, appeals to Genesis 1. God the Son, God the Word, says, have you not read that he who created them, made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Are we going to uphold this? Or is divorce, is marriage going to be a free-for-all? Is divorce going to be a free-for-all? We fell out of love. And what are we going to educate our children with? How are we going to fight this? All right. I answered no questions. My intention was to highlight to you today 
that all of these things, if we do not go back to how God created man, male and female, for his good purposes, we are not going to have an answer for any of these. We're going to look stupid. It's not important that we look good or look stupid. We're going to disgrace the living God because we don't hold high what he has called us to. So, three things in closing. Understand the impact of these truths. God is God spoke. And the world stands in rebellion against them. The scope of these is going to affect me personally. It's going to affect my family. It's going to affect my church. It's going to affect my work, my community, and my nation. The scope is incredible. I have to understand the impact, but I always have to go back to God. And so indoctrination, bad word, but a good word. I have to understand what God says. I will either be conformed to the world, it will press me into its mold, or I will be transformed by the renewing of my mind. My desire must be Christ. I must feed and learn from him. I must know his word. I have no excuse not to pour over it and to discern his voice. And I don't do this in isolation. I do this in my church. I speak to my brothers and sisters in Christ on these issues that we may together know and discern the mind of God. And then I, third, I inhabit the truth. I inhabit the truth. God's way is the only way that will bring about human flourishing. It is the, God's way is the only way to salvation. But for those who do not know God, it is the only thing that will bring blessing in the community is following after his rules. I don't mean it merely from a pragmatic perspective. And in truth, a secular culture is not going to adhere to it because they're not going to hear it. So as I, as I inhabit and live and breathe this truth, I, I desire that others might know this as well. As we go out from this place, we are going to be fools. You are going to be seen as a fool for Christ. But the question is, will you believe him and trust him that this is right and this is good? Let us fight the pressure that comes on us from the outside and let us not abandon our hope in the living God.